I feel immense good fortune. to have encountered the Buddhist teaching. And before I would have encountered the Buddhist teaching and recognized it as something worthy, I suppose, was the immense good fortune of meeting other living, breathing human beings who had cultivated this path of cherishing presence of mind, presence of heart, cultivating this path of investigation, this path of impeccable living, learning to really be concerned about what we put in motion with our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. Having the immense good fortune of meeting those who had made much of awareness and began to see through the distortions of views and opinions, which I I didn't even have any idea the significance of a view and an opinion. I mean, view and opinion is what you got to have to be somebody. What's your favorite movie, music? What is your this? What do, you, what do you like about that? What's your opinion about so-and-so? You know, that's what makes you somebody. To meet beings that could uh, introduce me to this path, great good fortune and to meet the Buddhist teaching, have a chance uh, practice it and begin just begin to recognize what are the dangers of this existence what we need to be careful with what we need to relinquish what we need to lift up and make much of Relinquishing intentions of harming, relinquishing greedy, grasping intentions. Relinquishing cruelty, making much of awareness, generosity, compassion, truthfulness, and so on. I just want to begin this evening to by, by saying I believe that uh, this is an auspicious event. And though in the midst of our facing these swirling currents of the floods, the floods of uh, becoming and birth and death and suffering, that become apparent when we stop and give space for these Dynamics to become conscious. In the midst of that, sometimes it doesn't feel so auspicious. And we can, uh, and it's chronic in our society, in our culture. We can then oftentimes have really harsh judgments of ourselves. 
But in terms of looking at the world the way it is, to be spending a week cultivating harmlessness, care, investigation, understanding what leads to suffering, understanding and, and cultivating that which leads to the end of suffering. This is praiseworthy. This is good. This is auspicious. I'm very pleased to be a part of, of it. And in the small groups, what I get struck with, and it seems to happen to me on many retreats, even though physically I, I find it quite difficult to retreat with all people and just having the energy to do what needs to be done, that pales in the background to my being struck, especially in the small group sessions when people make sounds from their experience. What I get struck with is the, the potentiality of our collective wisdom. There's, there's so much beautiful insight, honesty, the qualities that, that emerge when people just speak the truth. And the speaking is, is, is linked to the process of our experience. It really gives me hope for the possibility of, uh, of our world. So may the ways that we are cultivating, may they truly uh, flow out, not only in our own body and mind, but into our families in cultures and world. We've been contemplating uh, death. We might not have called it that, but contemplating the letting go, contemplating the dying. I really enjoy this contemplation. One, because I, though I'm much better now, I was so sick for so many years, Sometimes my roommates in the monasteries, sometimes we had our own room, sometimes we'd share it with another monk. My roommate once, who's now the abbot of another monastery up north, he'd say, Kitty, I don't know whether I'm going to see you tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) Not looking so good. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Venable. But really contemplating the letting go, and, and what a paradox, but what magic, that the more we are sensitive to dying, the more we're sensitive to the ending of things, the more we're sensitive to the fading, savoring that, noticing that, Sound is a wonderful gateway there. Appreciating sound and then investigating the dying of sound, the ending of sound. And especially noticing the tendency that thinks nothingness and then looking for something else. That's called birth. Or like on the radio where sometimes they cut out all the pauses. Or in the classroom, a pause is, oh God, nothing's happening. In the meditative life, the pause, 
or as our teacher used to say, the gap is very important. <coughs> Minding the gap. Not being afraid to fall in there. This is a gap that we can, we can die into, but, but uh, discover that which timelessly holds us, timelessly supports us. In contemplating dying, contemplating fading, contemplating ending of a breath, of a sound, of a mood, of a movement, of a thought. I'll say that again. Of a thought. Of a conviction. It's really going badly. It's really going badly. It's so bright, so wonderful. I dedicate the rest of my life to the Dharma. Future lives, all of my future lives to the Dharma. Till the last blade of grass is enlightened. I can't bear another moment. Ring the bell or I'm going to scream. (laughs) All these incredible thoughts die, die, die. The Buddha taught there's monks, there is an unborn, unbecome uncreated, uncompounded. If it wasn't for this unborn, unbecome, uncreated, uncompounded, undying, if it wasn't for this, there would be no escape from the born, the become, the created, the all these circumstances that we grasp. But monks, because there is this unborn, undying, unbecome, uncreated, uncompounded, there is an escape from the born, the become, the created, the compounded. (coughs) Rather than get the monks to say, all right, monks, I want you to say, I believe in Nibbana. After me. <laughs> I believe in Nibbana. And again. I believe in Nibbana. More conviction, please. I believe in Nibbana. I feel like moving to that. (laughs) And I come from a place where I could get into that. In the South in America, we can get going on on believing. 
And there's a, there's a place for celebrating conviction. There's a place. But just notice. Just notice that the Buddha didn't teach that way. Get all fired up about Nibbana. He guided us to that by saying, if you want to know the unborn, uncreated, undying, we've got to know the born. We've got to know what dies. What shifts? What changes? And miracle of miracles. What happens when we fully are let go of the views and opinions about it, but just meet, for example, the breath, which sounds like a thing, the breath. We let go of that concept, which points us to the breath, points us to the process, points us to the mysterious, ever-changing process. But the word is not the process. The word is not the thing. When the word directs the attention, that aspect of the mystery manifests, becomes apparent, and when we meet it, it's ever-shifting, welling up, pausing, subsiding. Welling up, subsiding. Never static. And even though, like with the sound, we're meeting the, what conventionally speaking we would call change, what was is not there, it's died, it's shifted, it's not there. The sound was there, there it is, but you'd say, well, it's not there. It's subsided. In-breath was there, and it's not there. Now when we contact this, notice this, dwell with this, we can find ourselves being with the changing, the shifting, the changing, but noticing something's peaceful about it. How can that be? Why is it peaceful being with all this change? When the sound subsides, there's the knowing of the sound, but when the sound subsides, what remains? When the thoughts subside, is it just dead silence? Or is there a a hearing nature that remains, a knowing nature that remains, an aware nature that remains? These are all just words that keep subsiding. So in all my years at the monastery when I was sick, I had a chance to contemplate this. I showed up at the monastery, coming out of my wrestling past, out of my mode of wanting to be successful, which is not bad. Showed up with big muscles at the monastery, big chest, did yoga, all sorts of yoga, back bends, handstands. So I was appointed as the one to teach at the monastery yoga in the early morning. 
to try to get some vitality in the in our in flexibility in our in the early morning we did it then after and then uh, that wasn't enough I felt like I've got to do more than that did the meditation and I've got to do more than that oh this is a the rains retreat a period of the year when we do extra practices oh, got to do tougher practices so I thought oh that's a tough one not to lie down for three months I'll do that one <laughs> and that, this is not even listed in the practices but some were doing fasting and I thought well I'll not lie down for three months enough, but it's not quite tough enough I'll do some fasting at the same time it's not enough just to do fasting at the same time I'll still serve the food at that to really contemplate it. <laughs> and then it's very important to serve the senior monk. And uh, so the senior monk at that time, one thing that's nice to do, help them relax with all the pressures, is to see what their needs are in the evening, maybe give them a foot massage. I'll do that too. These are all yeah, nice things to do. There were effort in it. But there was also this driving, having to... Climb your way up. The irony is, uh, I made it through that three months, but I, I, know I started to get sick. Not necessarily because of that. I don't think it was because of that. It was just some sort of karmic situation, but I ended up getting typhoid, getting really sick, and almost dying, and being saved by the... Uh, Ajahn Chah then realized the local hospitals wouldn't really do it, so they took, but I was pretty unconscious at the time. They put me on an overnight train and sent me to a hospital in Bangkok. And for years after that, I was really sick, lying down a lot of the time. But my Western teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, remembered me coming so strong, doing the pranayama, doing the yoga, being enthusiastic. And so he naturally, being compassionate, wanted me to get better. And so all sorts of strings of doctors I saw and healers, and I had 70 different sorts, not 60 different sorts of therapies in the monastery. This was once I moved from Thailand to, to England to help with the monasteries there. But I still was really sick, spent hours and hours every day lying in the attic, not well. And one day, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, my Western abbot, came up to my room and uh, said, Kitty Saro, I'd like to talk to you. He said, Kitty Saro, he said, I realize I want to apologize. He says, I've been putting all this pressure on you to get well. Because you know, I remember, we remember how nice it was being with you when you're strong and well. He says, you know, that must be a burden. He says, you have permission to die. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I laugh now, but I, I cried for joy. The relief, just having permission to relax. So much of my life was about doing, getting there, 
doing all those amazing things, sitting all the time and never lying down, and then for years lying down and not being able to sit. <laughs> Couldn't even get to the... I felt guilty about that. I mean, a monk who can't sit. I mean, what kind of monk is that? And he says, you know, you have permission. He says, you know, I'm not saying we want you to die. It'd be lovely if you don't, but you have permission. Don't worry about it. The relief of letting be, the relief of letting be, especially if you're weak, it's a good opportunity to practice dying, practice letting each thought, because if you're weak, it's hard to hold a train of thought. If you're weak, it's hard to hold your gaze. If you're weak, it's... So we hold and then just let be, let go. Practice letting a thought dissolve. Practice noticing the gap. And in the lying down posture, practice on the out-breath feeling that sense of not making the effort but being supported. Resting. So through that period, I had an opportunity to get a good feeling for this, this that remains, that doesn't die. The sound is born and dies. The evening meeting, the conditions were such, this meeting had a birth. Different people filed in, chanting. Then it will have a death. And the meeting, this, this hall will then be empty. All trace of that experience, gone. And then dawn is born. Morning chanting is born. And, uh, Wednesday will be born. And then dissolve. Now we have the dying away of Tuesday. Birth and death. Birth and death. What <coughs> remains? This is for us to explore. It's just an analogy, but it, it sometimes can give us an analogy, can help us, help us understand. That's why the Buddha used them so often. He oftentimes used the analogy for the mind of empty space. True nature of the heart is measureless, boundless, unobstructed. Luminous. Once was that when I was a monk, uh, I was uh, taken by a friend when I was the abbot of a little monastery here in Devon. This is back in the 80s. He took me to London, and this is a whole separate talk, so I won't give it, but he took me to London to see a, a sculptor he thought I'd be interested in. It's a wonderful piece of work. called Jacob Wrestling the Angel in, in beautiful alabaster. And it was uh, beautiful. Beautiful reflection on how stress is created by clinging and, and the divine manifest when we let go. That's a whole 
different thing. But on the way home, we were driving home from London. And the guy, a friend of mine that was driving, Ricky said, it was dark. He said, Kitty Shaw, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I really got to pull off the road. I'm scared we're going to have an accident. He says, don't worry. He goes off the road. Pauses and very quickly goes to sleep. He, I think he might have even been snoring. He's going to sleep. So I'm sitting there, side of the road in the dark. I guess by then we were back somewhere, moving from London toward the south, west. Then out the window, in the black sky, suddenly, I don't know what day it was, but a uh, Beautiful firework. Imagine black sky and rainbows of colors and streaming light and the thrill, the thrill of the unexpected manifestation and wondering where the next one was going to come from. And then maybe quickly, over there. Yet noticing, being a meditator, noticing. First I thought, I've got to tell Ricky about this. And I thought, oh, he's resting. Don't worry about him. Just enjoy the show. But enjoying the show and noticing the stress of just wanting to see the good stuff, making that preference of the good stuff is, is, is the color and the, and the sound effects and the... And the oh, different colors of them. Wanting to catch it. And noticing the stress of that. And then being able to appreciate that. And noticing how each dissolves into the immensity. The unmoving immensity. And that there wouldn't be fireworks without the immensity. That consciousness creates the sense of reality around the this and the that and misses the the matrix, misses the context, misses the spaciousness of consciousness, pure consciousness. And in that very attaching, we create birth and death. In the same way, it's obvious with fireworks, if you're trying to grasp that or a lightning flash or a bubble, these are some of the images the Buddha gave. I don't think he gave a firework image, but it's similar. <laughs> the bubble, the lightning flash, the shadow, the dewdrop, the tendency of the heart to, because of concepts, because of our relationship to concepts, which give the sense of that's real, that's a thing, it's mine, it's beautiful. It's ugly. I don't want it. Dewdrop. Lightning flash. Bubble. Shadow. Even shadow is very good. Shadow, like a thing. And yet, the shadow is not a thing, a separate thing, is it? Shadow depends on, on, on the sun. The forms, that relationship. It's, it, it's not... Yet the mind picks stuff out. It picks out of me. It picks out of you. It picks out what I need and what I want. And in that very moment, we create birth and death. 
This is what Ida, this is what the Four Noble Truths are really about. It, the, the Buddha called it Idapachyata, the eternal law of this that conditionality. Idapachyata. That when this arises, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. It's called dependent origination, or recognizing that there aren't just independent chunks of stuff that conditions give rise to something and then when conditions change that so-called something disappears. When there is thirsting, craving, grasping, when that's present there is birth. And when there's birth there's going to be death, old age, sickness, when there's birth, there's got to be death. When there's grasping, taking something to be mine, then when that something shifts and changes, there's the sense of being altered, sense of losing one's balance. It's just a law. Itapachyata. Birth. How do you get a birth? Birth comes from, this is subtle, but it's something we at some point need to look at on this path when the mind thinks of something as a something you create a something just like if you take that sound the bell when the mind says ah sound bell there it is We hold the idea of sound. It's a thing. Then, what do you call this then? Oh, there's no sound. What happened to the sound? Uh, it died. It changed. Birth happens because of a thingness. Whenever you get a thingness, you get a day... We've got day. We hold to that as a thing. Then, then we've got to talk about, well, why does it change? Then, then we introduce time. You get a thing, then you get otherwiseness. You get change. All that comes from the first <clears throat> thingness. It comes from the leap from sensory contact to interpreting that with our ideas of me and mine and this and that.
So in our contemplation, we start to realize that thoughts don't really tell us what something is. They point us, and we start to witness the ever-changing quality. And in starting to see the ever-changing quality of every thought, every feeling, every perception, every volition, every moment of knowing, and we start to get a feeling for dukkha, how how if we expect certainty from that which is inherently uncertain, that is stressful. So then the concept of the understanding of not-self comes about. It's not a philosophy we have to believe in. It's not just trying to pretend this is, I believe in not-self, that there's no self. It's to balance a chronic tendency of the heart to cling, to take this body as mine, which is changing all the time, to take these moods as mine, to take these thoughts as mine. Not self reminds us to like that <clears throat> fireworks in the sky, to, to notice those conditions that keep dissolving back into the suchness of inner listening, the suchness of the immovable knowing. Anatta, the gateway to anatta, the gateway to not-self, is this noticing of change. And the Buddha taught it's also a learning, it's a place of non-possession, a place of letting go, a place of relinquishing. In this practice, we're, we're, learning, we're learning how the mind can hold, steady and investigate a form. And then we're learning how also to hold very loosely and gently and getting a feeling for the formlessness, the spaciousness of the of the source. One way of putting it, which we you've heard us Tennis and my, myself mention on many occasions is Wisdom, a great sage, Srinivas Sargadatta, said this. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the saint flows. The unwise heart that hasn't practiced Dhamma claims forms, claims feeling, claims these aggregates. And in so doing, we experience the stress as they naturally do what they do, shift and change. So as we start to open to dukkha, open to change, and start to see things change, we then learn to let be. Not to convince ourselves that it's not me, but to balance the tendency to keep clinging, feeling the strain of that, the burden of that, that, the oppressiveness of that, the relief of being able to have someone tell us it's okay to let it be. It's okay to let it die. 
And how bizarre that in letting die we discover something that never dies. How bizarre in trying to desperately hold on to life we never taste life. That was my experience. How strange and unexpected that in resting, letting go, in not claiming, just in moments, moments of our sitting letting each sound just be letting it be letting each feeling non-possession just surrendering it not driving it away just letting it brush the consciousness letting whatever the thoughts are not grasping or rejecting them wisdom says I'm no thing wisdom when wisdom sees how ever-changing they are, it's, it's preposterous to think we can claim something. We can say it's mine, conventionally speaking. In our moments of quiet, that's what's so useful, in the moments of a little samadhi, when we see how sound is so elusive, how thought is so elusive, how every moment is so elusive, it's, it's crazy to try to claim it. So wisdom lets be. And in letting be, what do we notice? This, this background, this sky, this spaciousness. It's peace. The Buddha said, wherever you taste the ocean, it has one taste, salty. Wherever you taste this dharma, it has one taste. Peaceful. Whether we're happy, whether we're unhappy, whether we're this on the moon, whether we're uh, on the North Pole, whether we're in Africa, if there's a moment of letting go of grasping, we get a feeling for the immeasurability, the stillness, the brightness, the depths to this. Naturally, though, this can, and and don't worry, it's not to panic about it, but for many of us, our first experience of of peace is just that, is the non-possession, is the letting go. Then there's the sense of non-suffering, sense of peace, and then we find ourselves stumbling or clinging, and that's suffering, and it seems to be associated with the body or associated with feeling, and so we can sort of think, well, that's where the suffering happens, and we like to keep going back to the emptiness, where there's not clinging. The mind is empty of clinging. The mind is empty of impingement. In our heart, we can make a distinction between the peaceful and, and the suffering, the empty in all those forms. It's natural. It's even useful for a while. When we're so obsessed with form, it's useful to, to learn to start to focus more on the sky, focus more on the background. <coughs> but we shouldn't think that we're finished. If we're not careful, we, 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 we maintain this duality, and we might even maintain some aversion, aversion to contact, aversion to, to the world. And our emptiness 
is not really true emptiness if it, if it's still somehow un, in, uncomfortable with contact, uncomfortable with form. So the heart can let go, but also the heart can hold on. Compassion says, "I'm everything." We'll be looking. We'll be looking at that later, in the next day or so. The I am nothing. It's just a way of talking that help give can help give rise to spacious heart. The I am everything is not eternally true, but just noticing that within this spacious heart, within space, is everything. Is everything. We don't see it sometimes, but within this heart comes the sounds, comes the thoughts, comes the day, comes the night, comes the liking, comes the disliking. One saying of the Buddha that I contemplated a lot this year on my year's retreat was a ka se padang nati samano nati bahi rei papancha birata pajani papancha tatagata. A ka se means space, the sky, padang, footprints, tracks, nati. There are no tracks in the sky. There are no tracks in the sky. It's the first line. Samano nati You don't find the sage out there. There are no tracks in the sky. You don't find the sage out there. Papancha biratapaja. Papancha. The ordinary person delights in complexity, proliferating about this, about that, about good, about bad, about here, about there, right, about wrong. Nippapancha tathagata. The tathagata, the Buddha, delights in nippapancha. The Buddha delights in non-complexity, non-proliferation. So the sky doesn't have footprints. No tracks in the sky. You don't find the saint or sage out there. The worldling, the ordinary person, delights in complexity, the tathagata, the thus come one, the awakened one, delights in non proliferation, non complexity. And he goes again, Akase padang nati, samano nati bahire, sankara sasata nati, nati buddha nang Again, the sky doesn't have tracks in it. You don't find the saint out there. Sankara sasata nati. The compounded thing, there are no eternal compounded things. Compounded thing, meetings are compounded, they're made. Not eternal disperses. The dawn's compounded, disperses to dusk. Birth of a human body, different circumstances, 
allow it to come to be, subsides. Galaxies, not eternal. They're born and they die. Anywhere consciousness calls something or something, it becomes otherwise. So that's sankarasasatanati. There are no eternal compounded things. And in the last line, nati buddhanang injitang. Buddhas never waver. There are no tracks in the sky. You don't find the sage out there. Ordinary people delight in complexity. The Buddhas delight in stopping that. There's no tracks in the sky. You don't find the sage out there. Compounded conditions are not eternal. There's no eternal compounded condition. Buddhas never waver. What never wavers? Can we compassionately, in our wisdom, letting the conditions dissolve, get a feeling for this sky? the heart. Why aren't there tracks in the sky? Where's the substance for them to... When we actually notice the substance of thoughts and feelings and sounds, we actually realize it's like that. It keeps dissolving back into presence. But the whirling, the ordinary person, we're always interested in this footprint, that footprint... This characteristic, which is me, that one, which is you, that's big, that's small. This is good, that's bad. That's all fine, but not realizing the limitation of that. That's all rooted in what's called papancha, conceptual proliferation. The Buddha taught, it's taken me a while while to get around to it, that it's important that we train in neat, in learning, yes, use our thoughts, but no thoughts for what they are. And to practice letting thoughts dissolve. Practice learning not just to lean on thoughts. Practice learning to rest in the suchness of things between the thoughts. So he gave a practice. In the scene, let there just be the scene. In the herd, let there just be the herd. Learning to see and then looking at the mind, making a whole big thing of it. Okay, but then practicing some not feeding that, just being able to be with seeing, be with hearing, be with feeling. And when there's thinking, to be with thinking. Learning if we can, when we're walking, notice I'm walking, I'm getting somewhere. But is it possible to that thought can help us stay with what we're doing, but is it possible then to let that thought subside and start to be with the mystery? We realize thoughts, as I said the other night, thoughts fall silence, bef- silent before this dharma. Can we really capture this moment? 
if you say the firework display is, it's there and then it's gone. If you say it isn't, it doesn't exist. Then there it is. Is, isn't. We can argue about is, isn't, is, isn't. Good, bad, good, bad. Is it right, wrong, right, wrong? This dharma can't be captured. The dharma meaning the true nature. So we practice letting thoughts dissolve and just resting. When we use a thought, we know that there's a thought that can describe, can point, but can't ultimately tell us what we are. If we think it does, then we contract around something, get born, and then feel ourselves losing it when it dissolves. So ultimately, then, all the categories, when we, when we deeply practice learning to let the mind be silent, having thoughts but then knowing thoughts in their nature. Then the the boundaries start to dissolve. A great master that that we're using a lot of his teachings, Master Xinhua, said a phrase that Tanisha and I reflect on a lot and to me this is where we're all going. He said, all living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are my function. Start to practice letting the heart go silent. Nothing, and within that nothing, everything manifests. This is what we're growing into. All living beings are my family. We're of one substance. We have a kinship. The universe is my body. All of space, wherever we are, is where we can learn. My name is empty, formless. And within that emptiness, when there's not... Too much obstruction, there's the opportunity for us to respond. Within an empty heart, when it's appropriate, there can be kindness. When there's pain, where it can be open enough to sense that and respond with compassion. When there's beauty, joy, whether it's nature, whether it's a lovely movement, in the Qigong, whether it's laughter, whether it's serenity. (coughs) When it's beauty, an empty heart then can resonate with that which is beautiful. An empty heart that knows that what arises ceases can, no matter what the experience is, 
maintain contact with equanimity. Some worry that in this practice we just become more dead. But uh, I, I do. It's work in progress, as we've said before, Janissa and I are just little by little learning and sharing. But our deep experience is that this does take us to not to a dead place, not to a barren place. And though emptiness and that process of letting go and dying sometimes can feel feel devastating, little by little, if we're patient, it can allow us the spaciousness of uh, of resonance being able to manifest in our lives. So may the goodness of our day truly be shared. Remembering that we are brothers and sisters in this uh, realm of birth and death. May we truly share the, the auspiciousness and virtue of having the opportunity to pause and contemplate. To cultivate that which is harmless, blameless. Skillful. May that be shared with our parents, wherever they are, near or far, in this world or not. The loved ones in our lives. Family. 
friends, ancestors, colleagues, those we struggle with, those in the different realms, seen and unseen, large and small, powerful and weak, a gesture of non a gesture of relinquishing, sharing, resting in allowing our inherent goodness to mingle with the whole. May all beings truly be free from suffering and awaken to the peaceful heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.